I'm Vicki Basilega, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist section here at ASHP, and thanks so much for joining. I'm excited to share that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional programming from the 2022 ASHP Major Clinical Meeting that focuses on best practices and actionable steps that you can use in your practice to make meaningful changes towards more equitable, diverse, and inclusive teams and organizations. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. Yeah, impact if you want to remember that. So let's talk a little bit about how we take the information that we have about people groups and how we can put it into clinical practice. So the first thing that we really need to keep in mind, though, is to avoid stereotyping. And Shirley kind of referenced this at first. You know, we might have some basic facts or knowledge about various groups, and that will give us a starting point about how to interact with people. But then this, can, this approach can lead to stereotyping, so just keep that in mind. And then it ignores variations within those groups. So case in point, you know, when we talk about Latinx or Mexican-Americans, sometimes it's easy for us to consider just all of them as a whole group. But there are very, a lot of differences in terms of generation, um, cultural community, uh, like acculturation, um, citizenship, refugee status, circumstances, and proportional life spent. Like here in the first, in that example I put in, first generation immigrants who um, came from Guatemala compared to a sixth generation Mexican American in Texas. Huge differences. So it's really, um, it's not easy for us, though, to do that unless we get to know the patients um, and, and their values. And so um, just keep in mind, you know, we can't know everything about every culture, and that culture is just one of many aspects that can influence a person's um, health beliefs and practices, and that people can have many identities. So with that in mind, I do want to just give you some basic understanding about some, some people groups just so that we can have a basis to start with today. So in terms of at least Asians, um, there are two major health systems of health theories and practices, and they are the Chinese medicine and India's um, Ayurveda. And, but both of these are grounded in principles of healthy living and wellness um, throughout the entire lifespan. And that lifestyle is given an important emphasis over medications. And so in terms of regions influenced by these health beliefs, um, in East Asia and Vietnam, they're more strongly influenced by the Chinese medicine health um, practice. And then the other ones that are influenced mostly by um, Ayurveda are South Asia and most of Southeast Asia. Now, of course, there are also minor health practices and beliefs among like the Japanese culture, um, known as Kampo, and then um, Korean medicine has its own beliefs as well. And then very key is also Hmong or Southeast Asian as well. And I'll point that out in actually in the next couple of slides. So in terms of um, how do we deal then with Chinese patients specifically, and I bring this up because later, way later on in our discussion, we're going to um, talk about, um, we're going to have a discussion um, reviewing health education specifically for this people group. So in terms of um, the Chinese culture, illness and death are viewed as a normal part of life, and that... Um, it's really important to find a harmony between complementary energies, such as cold and hold, or yin and yang. And then um, food and herbs are really used to restore um, the imbalance in a person's body. And that 
Many believe that Western medicine might be too strong or ineffective compared to traditional Chinese medicine, which has been around for thousands of years. So it's really important that as a healthcare provider that we build these bridges that connect both the traditional medicine view and Western care. And that also when we're doing our medication reconciliation, we ask patients about um, what drugs, what herbs, what supplements they could be taking, what drinks they could be drinking, because um, we can then screen for potential drug-herb interactions. We also should really strongly incorporate dietary advice, but keep in mind that different um, people may be the ones preparing the food rather than the patient in front of you. And that we should explain that um, Western medications are customized based on weight, height, and metabolic needs. And then also talk to patients about side effects and what to do um, when they experience it. Now, I bring up Hmong patients because I wanted to contrast for you how many people might know about what Chinese patients might have health beliefs about, but with Hmong patients, their health beliefs are different. And so I wanted to give you kind of a compare and contrast. So among Hmong patients, they might believe that illness is caused by a combination of natural and supernatural causes. So they might seek a variety of specialists to help them with their diagnosis and treatment and that they might also present with unusual physical markings, such as bruises or redness on their body. And this could be the result of um, traditional, cup, uh, like traditional healing practices, such as cupping, spooning, or coining. And that um, in terms of physical interaction, it is not part of their culture to hug or shake hands or make direct eye contact with the opposite sex. So um, they might prefer that um, that you not do that. <laughs> Even though shaking your hand, shaking a patient's hand when they come into the room um, might be your part of the dominant healthcare culture, but not part of theirs. So they also might prefer providers to ask them about their family or discuss other things in their lives before asking direct and very personal questions about their physical health. They also might prefer you to speak more softly um, because speaking loudly could be considered offensive and many of them are more soft-spoken. And then to avoid complimenting their children, um, because many believe that if a bad spirit hears you compliment their children, that that spirit could take away that child's soul. And then lastly, it's important as providers that we ask about their use of traditional medicine and practices. Um, so at this time, I'm gonna hand it back to Shirley to talk about um, African-American patients. Okay, so um, in our non-Hispanic black patients, um, there is a strong um, influence of community. So religion and church plays a big role for some of our patients. Family um, and kind of that sense of shared community, we probably have seen that through um, even like our the barbershop work, um, working with our um, hypertensive patients. So there's a a lot of um, community and you know bringing healthcare into the community has been um, effective for our black patients. Um, a lot of cultural and historical factors actually contribute to our patients' present day dietary practices. So a lot of our patients will choose the types of foods they eat based on what's accessible. Um, a lot of my patients, you know, they say a Burger King is available down the street. So that's, that's what I eat, it's easy. Um, it's available, it's affordable, um, and um, that's what I choose to eat. Um, eating healthy for these patients 
may mean giving up something that belongs to a population's cultural heritage. So um, when, whenever we give kind of like dietary advice or um, lifestyle management um, education to our patients, being aware of this and um, allowing the patient to kind of, you know, figure out, well, you know, this is what we recommend. How can you adapt this to your own kind of cultural, um, cultural diet? Um, something that we cannot ignore is um, a lot of our patients, um, because of the past treatment by um, our scientific community, you know, primary Tuskegee trial, um, a lot of our patients actually come into our clinic and they, there's a lot of lack of trust in the healthcare providers and our system. Um, and, you know, working with them through that, um, learning how to give the patients the space to talk about that if needed during the clinical um, interactions you have with, patient, with the patient, I think really um, allows them to feel like they've, they've been heard. Um, so that, that's something I would recommend. And um, because of that, there's a lack of access to high quality healthcare. And um, we talked about this before. Um, it also exacerbates the, the mistrust. Um, other considerations in our um, non-Hispanic black patients, there is apprehension in using opioids. Um, a lot of our patients are fear of a, being addicted. Um, I think a lot of patients actually, our black patients prefer not to be on medications as much as possible. And um, even when we talk about you know, antidepressants and starting medications for mood, there is a lot of concern about being addicted and being um, kind of having to take this medication for life. Um, the same conversation happens when we talk about diabetes medications, hypertensive medications, like, you know, will I have to be taking this for life and require, you know, educating the patient that reassuring them, you know, if you change your lifestyle and incorporate these um, other, you know, lifestyle modifications, there is opportunity to um, reduce the number of medications. Um, Taking account, once, once again, religion may prevent a patient becoming an organ donor, for example. Um, and there's also a fear that, you know, um, surgery may cause cancer to spread. So just something to keep in mind, I guess, um, whenever we have other um, comorbid illnesses. Um, older adults may seek treatment from home remedies, um, prayer, spiritual healers, um, and, of course, um, advice from family and friends. Um, and uh, whenever we, you know, when we have patients with like mental, acute, or chronic diseases, that this is sometimes viewed as a lack of spiritual um, balance that's causing the manifestation. So kind of allowing patients to share what, how they view um, disease. So let's start with communication. When you first see a patient, I don't know how many of you guys are in the AMCARE space or even, you know, in the hospital, when you see your patient, how might you greet them? Just kind of think, think to yourselves, right? You might say, let's say that you have a patient, Paul Lopez, and you might say, hi, Paul, how are you? Right, it seems like a very normal kind of way to greet someone, and it might also help you because you might be checking that you have the right Mr. Lopez. But that might actually be offensive for the patient, especially if the patient happens to be older than you. They really will prefer that you use their last name. So it'd be like, hi, Mr. Paul Lopez, or hi, Mr. Lopez first. That will be the first great impression that you can make is by referring to them by their last name. The second thing is etiquette. So patients are really responsive, and, and really this is probably more globally, to a provider that is warm, a provider that shows that they're taking their time, that they care for their needs, and they're not just another number in your patient load. 
There's also linguistic isolation. So this refers to patients that live in a household where no one over, you know, 14 or over actually speak English really or fairly well. And a lot of our patients do fall under that category. And that is also identified as a barrier for access to care. There's also the family structure. Um, for those of you guys working in the hospital setting or even the clinic setting, if you have a patient that's Hispanic or Latinx or Latino, you might notice that the whole family comes to those appointments or that they come to the hospital during that time. And that really is the concept of familismo, the concept of really the family being the most important unit. And sometimes the need of the individual are superseded by the needs of the family. So you might have a patient that um, they may not be doing really well, but they're a caregiver for somebody else in the family and they're really putting their needs ahead of their own. So that can also be a little bit of challenge when trying to help them for their care. And lastly, we have living arrangements. So Hispanic Americans are only second to Asian Pacific Islanders uh, patients or people to live with other family members. So you'll have a lot of your, especially your elderly patients, living with you know, their daughter, their son, um, a niece, nephew, et cetera. So you have, again, the concept of family. So a couple tips, as we mentioned, address by last name. Encourage questions because you are a provider. By virtue of being a healthcare professional, you hold more power or you know, you're kind of a higher level in their eyes. So they may not really want to ask you questions because they don't want to seem like they're questioning you or you know, define what you're saying. So really do try to have like an open line of communication and encourage those questions so they feel comfortable. And lastly, use professional interpreters. If you are not fluent and have not been certified as an interpreter, really use someone that has been because not using professional interpreters is actually a form of discrimination. So it is not ideal for you to use a family member to interpret for them um, or just kind of get away with your Spanish. Um, that will be you know, very inappropriate. And there's actually studies that show that um, you know, when you have a family member interpret for the patient, a lot of the things that the patient might feel embarrassed to talk about will not come out. So in studies done of older Hispanic women, they, they didn't really disclose issues that might be going on with their breasts, um, with any gynecological concerns or GI issues if they had a family member interpret for them, especially if the family member happened to be a younger male. So a couple more concepts. The first concept I wanted to talk about was acculturation. So this is really a continuum of where someone falls within their culture and the mainstream culture. So at one end, we have someone that's completely still immersed in their you know, culture of origin. They don't speak the language of mainstream or follow any of those cultural regulations. On the other end, we have someone that's fully immersed that maybe they don't even think of themselves as being part of their original culture anymore. And in the middle, we have those people that consider themselves to be bicultural and bilingual. And they can kind of shift depending on the situation. And it's not necessarily the one end or the other end is better than the other one. But there has been studies that have kind of seen how that impacts health. And in one study, women that were fully on the culture spectrum, like, you know, completely have not really 
consider themselves being part of their original culture. It shows that they were more likely to get breast exams, to actually get mammograms, talk to their doctors. And this study looked at Colombian women, Puerto Rican women, um, Dominican Republic women, and women from Ecuador. So, and I mean, again, there's not that one end is better than the other one. There's been studies that show that, you know, maybe women that were fully a culture were also more likely to smoke. So, just interesting how that might impact healthcare. There's also the concept of machismo and caballerismo. Um, I'm sure you guys have heard of the term machismo. Um, raise your hand if you haven't, and I don't want to put you in the spot. Oh, okay, perfect. So there's, okay. So machismo, we kind of think of those traits that are negative for men, right? So men that are aggressive, men that are sexist, men that maybe don't treat women as equals. That's kind of like your machista, machismo categories. And then on the other end, you have caballerismo, and that word comes from like King Arthur's knights, you know, someone that's a gentleman, someone that um, really does put family first and, you know, treats women as equal. And they have looked to see how that might impact healthcare. And it's been interesting. They looked at a study for, you know, the researchers looked at a study for men of the Hispanic men of sexual minority that were categorized based on, you know, they did a questionnaire to see which of the two categories they fell into. And men that were on the caballerismo spectrum were actually more likely to seek PrEP, um, HIV PrEP, to be adherent to PrEP, to actually be aware that PrEP existed. And they kind of concluded that that was probably likely because they were putting that family first and they wanted to keep healthy and safe for their partners versus men that were on the machismo spectrum, they kind of consider maybe PrEP to be a little bit more of a feminine trait, so they were less likely to actually seek PrEP services. There's also treatment considerations. Patients, again, this is going back to the Hispanic community, a lot of my patients around this time of the year kind of leave the country. They go back to Mexico, they go back to Central or Latin America for a couple of months to kind of be their winters there. And when they come back, you know, their chronic conditions are a little bit all over the place. But they also bring a lot of medications that they buy from over there because they're cheaper and they don't need a prescription. So this could be OTC or prescription medication. So it's always kind of a challenge trying to reconcile because we do have medications that are the same and some that may not quite be the same. So we just want to make sure that they're safe for our patients. There's also patients that might seek um, herbal treatments or herbal um, healers, as it was mentioned before. And a lot of the times, their recommendations are not really harmful. Um, and if the patient feels comfortable and, and they're able to afford you know, those teas or those pills, as long as they're safe, we don't really like, worry too much about it. But it is still important for us to double check what they have, because they could have things like Asarcon and Greta that they are powders that actually contain lead that sometimes are used for GI issues. Um, you know, like if a child has um, like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, they may get those powders. So it's, again, it's really important as pharmacists, and I know that we do that for any patient anyways, to double check what is it that they're bringing with them and what's being recommended um, by their other natural healers. And there's also the concept of religious beliefs. So again, this is going back to Mexican culture. I can't speak for, for every country in Latin America and Central America, but Mexico, it's a very religious culture, especially the predominant religion being um, Catholicism. 
So prayer becomes really important for patients. And, you know, they looked at studies to see how that might impact how they seek health care. And there's kind of been a little bit all over the place. Some might replace their traditional medicine for prayer, uh, for, you know, relying back on their faith, versus some just kind of use that as a supplement um, to the medications. But, you know, it has been shown that prayer does help with their anxiety and does help with their depression because it kind of gives them something to hold on to. Couple other concepts. So there's the concept of fatalism. So this revolves around the idea that whatever is going to happen is going to happen. So it's really outside of your control. There's something else that's dictating what's going to happen. So I know I just kind of talked about how machismo, caballerismo, um, you know, fatalism might impact healthcare, but in actual studies that they look to see, should we be trying to educate patients that they have agency over their health, that they can actually make changes, you know, willpower, make sustainable changes that can impact their health? How will that impact their actual health? And what has been found that it's not so much that as it is that they don't have access to preventative care. There's the culture and language differences that, you know, are are present in this community, and there's also the lack of health insurance. So in the United States, um, the Hispanic, Latino, Latinx community are number one in, from racial and other ethnic groups at not having health insurance. So really, as you know, public health officials, they should really be trying to target these three things instead of trying to put so much effort into changing patients initial beliefs about who governs their health and how much power they have over their health, because it seems to be more of an access situation. So let's talk about some strategies to promote culturally effective care. So there's this mnemonic respect. Um, it is used for um, therapists, but you know, as pharmacists, we do a lot of talking, we do a lot of counseling, so we can definitely adapt this to our practice. So we should always be respectful regardless of our patient's background and be respectful of their beliefs and their goals of treatment and how they perceive their illness. The explanatory model will go on the next slide, but that really relates back to what does the patient think and know and feel about their current condition. Social cultural context, it's important to think about how their gender, how their ethnicity, their race, their um, gender identity, sexual orientation, et cetera, how that shapes how they seek healthcare and the healthcare that they receive. There's also power. Again, you as a healthcare professional hold more power over them, and I know that sounds bad, but just inherently, there's gonna be an imbalance of power between the two of you. Always, obviously, be empathetic to your patients and the struggles that they may be facing, which may be very different than your life experience, and it might be harder to relate to that. Concerns and fears, try to address what concerns they might have over that therapy, what are their fears surrounding their condition. And as any relationship, trust is something that is earned, it's not something that it's given right away, right? So again, having that relationship to your patients so that you can form that trust bond with them. So for the explanatory model, there's these eight questions from Dr. Kleinmans, and they're meant to be asked in sequential order. I can kind of read some for you. I, I feel bad just kind of reading them off, but number one, what do you call your problem? What name does it have? What do you think caused your problem? 
Why do you think it started when it did? What does your sickness do to you? How does it work? How severe is it? Will it have a short or long course? What do you fear most about your disorder? What, do you, um, what are the chief problems that your sickness has caused you? What kind of treatment do you think you should receive? What are the important results you hope to receive from treatment? So if you notice, again, they're meant to be asked in sequential order, and it's really to help you kind of gather to see how they feel so you can kind of meet them at that middle. What are their concerns or beliefs about their condition? What meaning are they giving that condition? And what are their expectations from the treatment that they're trying to receive for it? So culturally and linguistically appropriate services. This slide is mostly definitions. I just wanted to kind of go over, I'm just gonna call it class. So this is responsive and respectful to cultural health practices and beliefs, communication needs, preferred language, health literacy level. As providers, if we want to provide culturally and linguistically appropriate services, it means we have to practice cultural humility and cultural competence. So we'll have some examples in two more slides, but who should be practicing class? Really anyone, it doesn't matter what your title is, we should be trying or aiming for this with all of our patients at any point that we interact with them. And it's gonna help us achieve the SIDS aims for enhancing healthcare quality, which is you know, healthcare that it's safe, that's effective, that's equitable, that's patient-centered, that's timely, that's efficient. So by, again, incorporating those class methods. So there's a little, little reminder about cultural and social identity, this framework of addressing. This is not all inclusive, but it kind of gives you a starting point when, um, when talking to your patients to kind of see what are some things that, that might be shaping their cultural and social identity. So if you think age, uh, A for age or generation, right? Are they Gen X? Are they millennials? Are they Gen Zs? Are they um, boomers? D for disability status, and that can be acquired or it can be um, developmental disability, their religion, the race or ethnicity, their socioeconomic status or sexual orientation, if they have indigenous heritage, their national origin, their gender identity. And again, this is not all inclusive. There's not here anything about like education level, um, language, et cetera, right? But again, it's just that starting point to think about what might be impacting how your patient seeks and receives care. So here are some strategies on how, can you, on how you can be more cultural competent and have more cultural humility. So some of these were already addressed by my colleagues, but cultural competency goes without saying, let's be respectful of the differences that your patient might have from you. Your life experience might be very, very different from them, but it doesn't mean that you, we cannot respect each other and still provide respectful care. Um, each patient has unique needs, so we need to adapt to those needs. And um, cultural humility, the patient is the expert about themselves, right? We might know a lot about drugs, disease states, but at the end, the patient knows themselves the best. Um, Self-reflect, we don't know everything. It would be impossible for a single person to know everything, and, and that's okay, but it's good for us to identify that we don't and try to learn um, from our patients, learn from those that are different than us. 
Some communication strategies, um, if, we, if you remember when we went over those eight questions, you might make note of the words that your patient is using or the preferences in terms of their language. So adapt, take those cues for your patient, from your patient to be able to use those during your communication. As we learn in pharmacy school, the teach back method is really important to make sure that we were able to actually give the information and it was received appropriately. And again, use language assisted services, use interpreters, um, because they are certified and trained to do what you're asking them to do. So do not rely on, you know, when you went to Mexico for a couple weeks and you kind of got away with some words, just get the interpreter. So a couple more strategies here. So health literacy, and these go really for any patient, not just your Latinx population, but for anyone, doesn't matter their country of origin, it can be from the US. Um, health literacy can be hard, right? Like medical terms may not be something that everybody will understand. So avoid medical jargon, right? You don't have to say abdomen, you can say belly. Um, use the patient's words, again, however they used to refer to what they have, bring it back in that conversation so they're able to kind of connect what you're saying to what they're thinking their condition is. Limit the information. Again, I know as pharmacists, we have so much information that we can share, and we want to be able to share it. But sometimes, you know, it's better to prioritize what are those three to five bullet points that you really want your patient to kind of take home with them. So use those and just kind of repeat them. Be specific, do not just kind of be vague. And I, I've been guilty sometimes of just giving kind of vague directions and the patient will come back and is like, wait, what if this happens? And it's like, oh shoot, you know, I need to be more specific about what I'm saying so they, they don't end up wondering at home whether they should take their insulin or not because I was kind of wishy-washy with my directions. Um, slow down, again, I'm guilty of this. I like to talk fast and that's not the best. So make sure that you slow down to make sure that information is well received and received appropriately. There's also the learn model and shared decision making. So learn model, again, listen to your patient, to how, what they're saying about their condition, explain what you're thinking of their condition, and then acknowledge where there may be differences or similarities in what they're shared and what you shared, and then make a recommendation, again, that kind of balances both of your guys' conversation and then negotiate that outcome or negotiate what you're gonna go ahead and do uh, for that patient. Share decision making, I know you're all familiar with that term and what that entails, but just as a little, a little reminder, so seeking your patients, um, kind of buying into the, what might be the recommendation for them. Help them um, see the, uh, learn about the different treatment options that they may have assess to see what might be the thing that works best for your patient that they feel the most comfortable, um, reach a consensus, and then evaluate that treatment plan that you have for the patient. So we kind of addressed that. The other thing I wanted to share, this is actually from a paper that looked into components of culturally competent healthcare. And some of the things I wanted to point out, in terms of the component, there's that individual level, and from the individual level, we're talking, you know, patient-provider relationship. So incorporate the family for the discussions, obviously with the patient's permission. Use, you know, culture incorporation as it was explained, you know, materials, concepts on your education that you provide. From the organization perspective, they should be interpreter services. We should have training from our uh, competence on cultural, cultural competence training uh, for our members 
of our team. There's also how do we implement this culturally competent healthcare where we need to see, we need to get buy-in from leadership, we need to do the needs assessment and monitor and have action plans, and how do we provide this culturally competent healthcare? We can do this via telemedicine, outreach methods, um, find ways to kind of engage your users, you know, your patients, how can they actually kind of get the buy-in from them as well? And community healthcare workers and networks. At our health system, we have outreach coordinators, which are um, not licensed professionals, but they are patients, you know, that speak the language, know the culture, they help so, they're not patients, sorry, they're employees. Um, they're so helpful. We have some, you know, that they will help patients enroll into Medi-Cal, which is our Medicaid, um, Medicare, um, patients that have food insecurity, they help, um, help them try to find food sources for them. Um, patients, sometimes that we have patients that are not able to pick up their prescription because we're in a rural area and they may not have a car and the pharmacy might be far away. They actually can go and pick up the prescriptions for those patients as well. So um, they're really, really helpful. So I highly recommend those in your organization if you don't have those. But now I'll pass it back. Thank you so much for listening in today. For more resources on incorporating diversity, equity, and inclusion into your practice, visit ashp.org backslash DEI. Be sure to follow us at ASHB Official wherever you listen to podcasts and check back soon to hear more episodes that feature the ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting Programming for 2022. Until then, this is Vicki Masculina from ASHB Official, and thank you 